Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Corey Peltier, who is an Assistant Professor of Special Education in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Oklahoma. He also contributes to the Science of Math movement that is focused on disseminating research-informed recommendations to enhance math instruction and outcomes for students, and this is the area that we will be unpacking today. In this conversation, we look at some of the points from the paper, Myths That Undermine Maths Teaching, that he co-authored with Sarah Power and Elizabeth Hughes. He also explains how teachers can use the instructional hierarchy to improve student performance, why curriculum-based measurements are useful, how we can build math fact fluency, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Corey Peltier. Really excited to be talking to Corey Peltier today. And Corey, before we get into our questions, are you able to just tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you're in today? Yeah, 100%. I, I like to actually start with this, even when people don't ask, because when, whenever I'm doing listening to someone talk, I like to understand the context in which has brought them to education. Sure. So I always wanted to teach high school math. That was my dream from the beginning. And I just, that was everything I ever wanted to do. And I got to my undergrad and took Calc 1 my freshman year and did terrible. First semester as a college student, was not the most diligent student at the time, and it didn't go well. And it was a mixture of, I didn't have, I probably should not have taken that class at the time I did, bad study habits. And then I also don't think I had the greatest professor at the time. And so I ended up totally switching out because at the time you had to major in math to then teach high school math. And I was like, man, if I'm struggling this much with Calc 1 and then Calc 2 and then Calc 3 and then the whole math sequence, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. So I switched out into elementary ed and that's really what got me on this journey. So I did elementary education, got a job my first year teaching. And my first year, my school was great. The principal was great. So much support. But the class I had, half of the students had an individualized education program, meaning they were receiving special education services. And then I realized rather quickly that that one special ed course, everyone kind of gets forced to take as an undergrad was not enough. And so I honestly started taking some courses in a grad program in special ed at that time. And it was just interesting to me because so much of what I was learning in those special education courses from an instructional design standpoint ran really counter to some of what I was taught in my other program. And it was almost like light bulbs for me because I was like, man, this is a totally different way about thinking about providing instruction. And I, I saw the benefits firsthand for all the kids in my class, but then also the students not identified with disabilities. And that's like, I was just gung-ho set on doing that. And that's what brought me into special ed. And then I really saw, I just, I, I got really passionate about working with other teachers. I found it really fun. And that's what got me into going 
further is I wanted to work with pre-service teachers because I knew my experience. I had some great professors, great classes, but there wasn't enough emphasis on what does it look like to teach students who really are not just picking it up, you know? And so that's what led me into higher ed and where I am today. Awesome. Yeah. So you're kind of talking about how you had to experience firsthand those, those sorts of failures and then starting to question like what was actually happening. And in a way, you were fortunate that you just happened to come across the right sort of course that put you in the right direction. Um, you know, now looking at your, your current position and, and working with pre-service teachers, are you are you finding that they're quite open to the methods that you're talking about? How is that coming across? Yeah, so I was very fortunate when I was doing my doctoral work. I actually, at the time, Texas A&M didn't have a course in their special education program on how to teach math. The students took all of the how to teach math courses through math education, and they actually added that course when I was there. So I actually kind of um, helped really... I I had the opportunity to help kind of build that course out, which was awesome. Um, And then when I was at OU, we didn't have a course focused on teaching math and we created that. And so, yeah, our students are very receptive of it, but they're also the students majoring in special education. And so some of the things that will happen is, well, some semesters I'll have students taking this, the course I teach, but then also taking another course on how to teach math in math education. And so that's where we have, I would say, really productive dialogue around why is some of what's recommending differing a little bit from what we're learning in here? And like, what, when would we perhaps want to use those things or not? And so I think it's beneficial, and I don't have any data on this, but I think it's helpful. I try to pitch it this way to them. When you're going out into the world someday as a special education teacher, and you are figuring out how are the kids on my caseload going to be successful in a gen ed environment? What are those people being trained in and how can you think about modifying, like helping co-plan and like modify that instruction somewhat so it's more beneficial? And so I see them, I see it as a benefit that they're seeing this other side, getting the, the coursework with us in our SPED program to then learn how to kind of have productive dialogues around what would be beneficial for kids in the class. Yeah, and, and we'll we'll start to unpack exactly what you're talking about throughout this conversation. But you're also you've also been part of this movement, the science of math. Mm-hmm. What sort of brought that about originally? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will not take credit for doing any of the startup work on that. But Sarah Powell, who's at UT Austin, I had known Sarah uh, even during my doctoral program because uh, my advisor didn't know anything about math intervention. That's not what her research area was, but she was able to connect me with Sarah and be like, this person knows everything you could ever want to know. And that's something I'll forever be thankful for that Sarah had no reason to be putting time or effort into talking to me about how to teach math. And she, she did. And so uh, years later, Sarah was, I was talking to Sarah about some of this stuff on how, how, how often we would provide recommendations about things and people would be like, oh no, your, your department is special ed. We don't want to listen to you. And um, Amanda Vander Hayden and Robin Cotting are two school psychs and both of them were running into some of those issues as well. And so that uh, Sarah and Amanda and Robin 
really started kind of bringing it together to be like, we, let's try to actually put people together who care about math instruction and get some movement out there to provide some recommendations, provide some access to research advice, and then to hopefully help teachers have another spot to look for recommendations to inform their practice. Yeah, great. And how would you define the science of maths? Like what actually is it? Because I know that there's been a bit of conjecture over what it actually is. Yeah, this is a me thing. So I'm speaking for myself and not the rest of the team. I almost wish we did not name it the science of math. We we ended up, and I would have to go back to our notes document to see some of the initial conversations because we had kicked around a lot of different wording we could use for what we were trying to do. And as everyone knows, the science of reading had been going full force by this point. And so a lot of people, this is where I think a lot of people think Sarah or Amanda just said, let's do it. It was because they were being asked consistently by people who are deep in the trenches. A lot of teachers being like, oh, we have all this stuff on reading. What about math? And so they would, Mm -hmm. teachers would be like, what do we do for math? And so that's why initially we went with the language science, uh, science of math. And what I would say is it's an attempt to look at the research base that we have currently, which all of us will be the first to say we have way less research for math than reading. So it's just an er- it's a lot earlier of a field from a research-based standpoint. But our goal is to look at research and then based on what research is recommending, based on so- some of the data from research studies, what might th- how might that information inform what effective instruction might look like? But that's the other thing. The way I approach it is I tell when I work with teachers or Uh, anyone, I'll say, you don't have to take my word for it. But if you try it, or if what if you're doing, if you're taking your own data, and you're not seeing kids learning, then something is clearly not working. And so that's what I recommend. If you don't want to believe us, or there's some things that rub you the wrong way, that's, that's fine. Take some data on student learning, and see what is happening at your school site. And then Clearly, by using data to inform changes you're making instructionally, and if you're seeing kids learning, well, then that might be something that is contributing to it. Yeah, and and the the journey that you described there yeah, is is quite similar to the one that a lot of educators in Australia have experienced, where you know they've engaged with the science of reading initially, and then mm-hmm. they start to ask questions around you know, so what does this look like in other subjects? And just naturally, maths tends to to be the next one where they'll be asking questions on and and so i think yeah you probably have a lot of teachers from here in australia who have been asking that question and and then when this term started to be used i think yeah a lot of people then were just asking like well okay so what what does this mean now and i think there have been a few different interpretations but yes yeah, nice to hear you clear it up you know i've also been doing a fair bit of presenting on on maths here in australia and, and i use a pretty similar definition so i'm glad we're on the same page with that and yeah, go one on. One of the things, can I jump in there? One of the things that's interesting to me is that I would I would argue very strongly there are cases where policy decisions are being made on very, I would argue right now, weak, weak evidence, right? But one yeah. of them that is not is screening, right? There, there's so many states now and well, so many states within the US that are mandating reading screening. It's like, hey. Kids are entering entering school, pre-K, K, first grade. We need to screen to see if there might be risk of reading difficulty so that we can then get tiered intervention supports in place to support, support those students in their reading development. 
And it's mm. wild to me to look around and not see any sort of movement on math. And yeah. we have enough evidence now to show like kids' math knowledge entering pre-K and K is very predictive of their whole later uh, math development. And to not see any movement, the number of schools that will be doing really good work in reading screening in K first, they don't have anything for math right now. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And so I would, I would say that that is one of the areas that is definitely needed from a policy standpoint is getting some support for math screening and then math interventions as well. Yeah. And, you know, we'll talk a bit about that in more detail later on, but I think, you know, like just off the top of my head, one of the reasons why I see that being as a bit of a difficulty is firstly, like knowledge and secondly, staffing. So actually yeah. having, you know, the knowledge on what to do and secondly, having the staff who can do it effectively, we're still kind of trying to catch up with what we should be doing effectively for reading. And so mm -hmm. that's where a lot of our resources are going. And so then we're, we're quite thin when it does come to looking at what we should be doing next for maths, you know, like, have you, have you seen schools that are effectively managing both of those kind of key areas? Yeah, that's a really great question. I don't, I can't speak for other countries, but I know yeah. in the United States, it is not uncommon to see reading specialists at each elementary school and sometimes more than one reading specialist. You won't see a math specialist anywhere. And the schools, uh, occasionally you'll see math specialists in specific schools, but usually it's tied to some sort of federal funding that they're able to obtain. And so, like you said, it's hard to find someone to organize school-wide systems of let's screen and math because there's not a point person to do that. The schools that I see doing it well are schools that have really well-organized multi-tiered systems of support. So when you actually have school psychologists that are able to help facilitate system-wide fidelity of doing some of those things, they're going to mm -hmm. be like, oh yeah, math is important as well. And so they can really help uh, segue that but it takes it takes that it takes a huge community of practice at your school site to identify that that's needed and that's where as you mentioned it is hard to it just if you if we just consider time right let's just consider time schools are like okay what i've seen a lot of elementary schools do is they'll block within their school day they'll have like a, a wildcat hour if their mascot's a wildcat cat right and that they they block that into their schedule to ensure interventions can happen which is awesome the problem comes in though what happens when uh, you have a child who would benefit from reading intervention but then also math intervention you have that one block of time there might just not be enough time in the day and this is where i'll be a huge advocate on this pulling them out of science and social studies is doing that kid a huge disservice down the line because background knowledge is inherently needed for those things in order mm -hmm. to engage re a reading and so i that's i'm not advocating for that but we see that and never mind time during the day you can go and look at elementary schools. They'll block off 90 minutes, 100 minutes, 120 minutes sometimes of reading instruction time. Math gets 40 minutes after lunch. And so yeah. there's so many logistical challenges schools have to face and like wrestle with of like, how are we going to organize our school day and just time allocation to ensure we can um, build in build in those that screening time, but then also supplemental instruction time. Yeah, you know, so many good points there. And 
it's it's it is just one of those challenges that that we face at the moment and you know i think as we as we do start to understand how we can teach that more effectively both for reading and maths we're slowly going to have less that are going to need that intervention but i'm thinking across the world it's pretty universal where we're still trying to play catch up at the moment and and yeah it's just like you said it's just that time factor where you you know you don't want to be taking away from those other key learning areas like science or history and geography where the background knowledge is key but they need to be experiencing some sort of intervention at the same time mm-hmm. so look one of the the papers that you were one of the co-authors on myths that undermine mass teaching you you wrote that alongside of sarah power who you you previously mentioned and elizabeth hughes uh, that was yeah really I think well received here in Australia when you when you wrote that for the Center for Independent Studies and I don't want to go too deep into that paper because that could kind of take us on a bit of a tangent we could we could probably unpack every single one of those points but I thought like there were a couple there that I think will just give us a good kind of background as to where you're coming from for the rest of the conversation so I thought we'd dig into one of the myths around inquiry based learning is the best approach to introduce and teach mathematics. And then the other one is productive struggle is important. Do you want to just unpack those a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that gets challenging is especially as we just were talking about, we have a lot of students who are at a specific grade point. There's specific content that's supposed to be learned at that grade point, And they might be a, a little bit further behind at that, at that point in time, right? And so you think about things dealing with uh, algebraic reasoning, right? So you have kids are beginning to learn how to work with uh, understanding the equal sign in depth. And Mm. they currently, that child's knowledge of just even addition of understanding we can have a join model and part, part, whole is not there. And so uh, we need to get that knowledge built to then fully build a firm foundation of the equal sign. And so this is where trying to, And this is where inquiry-based learning is such an umbrella term because there's so many different, it's just, it's just, it's a huge umbrella with so many different types of instructional models that would fit within there. But the, the big thing with a lot of just off the front is teachers are in most, in most of the models, teachers are not in charge of kind of leading, introducing the concept first, right? It's, it's usually that comes later. And from an efficiency standpoint, that's my biggest issue with them is I'm not saying it's not going to be effective, but it's going to take longer for a kid to master whatever you're trying to teach than using alternative methods. And this is where efficiency is really dang important for a lot of kids we're serving because they are currently, their current knowledge situated within mathematics is behind at the grade level they're currently at. And we need to efficiently build that knowledge in order to get them access to grade level material. And this is where it doesn't, this this comes, this will tie in a little bit to productive struggle. It doesn't make sense to me sometimes because uh, in, in, in other sorts of models of like teachers trying to provide a lot of support up front, they're, you're pre-planning in that students are going to be successful, right? So you're mm-hmm. like figuring out, here's the current skill I want to teach. We're not here yet. I'm going to drill back this. They know this thing. Here's the next skill. The likelihood of success is a lot higher. And this is where a lot of outside, they're very concerned with students' self-concepts as mathematicians. And it's like we are setting ourselves perhaps 
you're setting yourself up for a really, really hard, really difficult pathway to make sure that that student does have a positive self-concept when you mm. are tackling mathematics that is way too difficult. And so that's where I think within the inquiry base versus perhaps something more aligned with explicit type instruction, that's the kind of give and take there. And that's where I wouldn't, I won't say never do that. There is a time and place for that type of instructional model. And I want to like make that point very clear because I think a lot of people are like, oh no, they say never do that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying mm -hmm. there's a time and place where I would be uh, wanting to shift to that sort of learning model. Within the productive struggle conversation, my biggest concern with it is there's not an operational definition. I have no idea what productive struggle is. Mathematics is difficult to learn and kids should be faced grappling with mathematics. That is, a, I'm a thousand percent on board with uh, explicitly letting kids know learning is difficult and that's something we are going to be successful in. What then becomes productive struggle? I'm unsure. And so that's where I don't, I don't, it's hard to even write on productive struggle because there's so limited, limited utility of, is this productive struggle or is it not? Is this productive struggle or is it not? And so mm. it's, yeah. it's hard when you see certain organizations saying, make sure kids engage in productive struggle when there's not a working definition or a route of what that even looks like. Yeah. And comes back to what we were talking before about how like the time factor mm -hmm. so firstly if we're going to talk productive struggle we're going to give them two minutes is it going to be 10 minutes it's going to be you know 20 minutes more productive struggle and and we, we also know as teachers for a lot of those students if they are engaging with struggle let's not let's not even talk about productive but let's just call it struggle those who are struggling they're going to give up a lot faster than 20 minutes or 10 minutes, you know, even two minutes can be uh, too much for a lot of those students if they haven't got that sort of prerequisite knowledge and if they haven't been experiencing success and, and they do have that sort of negative um, self-concept when it comes to mathematics. So we know how important success is and that, that sense of success because success breeds success. Uh, it, can, it can just make it so much harder for our struggling students to engage with, with productive struggle if that's what we're trying to get them to do. Well, that's where I think at least some of the writing, some of the writing I've read on productive struggle that begins to provide better, I would say like more clear cut, like practical advice on it. Mm -hmm. Some of it, I'm like, that sounds cool. But one yeah. of the big areas I've seen for the advocacy of it is when engaging that students might be making errors, right? Or they'll be applying, they'll be making errors, applying misconceptions that are really common for the type of mathematical mm -hmm. task. And then that aspect of them struggling and making errors and then identifying their error and correcting it. You with me? For some reason, there, some people believe that that is a very magical thing. Like, so yeah. if a student makes an error, identifies their own error, corrects their error, that that knowledge is now going to somehow stick in their long-term memory longer than mm. if someone just told you that uh, yes. up front. And so that's where identifying and correcting errors is a very powerful uh, instructional practice. I would just argue, do that after, right? Give some worked examples up front, teach them the concept first, and then you can have them say, they, once you can know they can do it, hey, why don't you look at these work samples here? Can you identify the errors? And mm -hmm. you're still, so you're, we're still, what's a good way of saying this? The end goal of students thinking deeply about mathematics explaining errors right like building like showing strong yeah. conceptual knowledge is still happening it's just yeah. in a different order 
this kind of leads us well onto my next question, just around instructional hierarchy, because I, I think you'll be able to dig into exactly what you're talking about here as you go through that, that hierarchy. So can you tell us about why it's important for teachers to understand what it is and how they can use it to improve student performance? Yeah, of course. So the instructional hierarchy, you can go and find the original, the original chapter. It was in a book and that initial book is really dang hard to find. <laughs> it is, but there was, I actually try to uh, pass this along to anyone who will consider it. There's a yeah. journal called the journal of behavioral education. And in the year 2007, I can find the exact volume number and issue. There was a whole special issue on the instructional hierarchy and it is phenomenal. And so there's a couple, there's a couple like kind of just thought pieces on the instructional hierarchy. And then there's actually some experimental studies working within it. And those build. So any, if any people are really interested in reading more, I would put point everyone there to give it a read. But the yeah. basic premise is initially when we're trying to learn something new, if we're doing it independently, we're going to be frustrated, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where we would say, okay, that task is currently frustrational for a student independently, which through the instructional hierarchy, the recommendations would be, we need to provide some sort of acquisition instruction, meaning it's going to look a little bit more like a lot more teacher feedback, teacher explanation, more structured practice for kids to begin practicing. And typically you're going to try to shrink down that task uh, a little bit smaller. And then as students are able to kind of move through their begin to discriminate between what's incorrect, correct responding, you'll see that when students are doing that specific, and actually let me unpack something for a second, Brendan. Sometimes I think people think within the instructional hierarchy, we're talking about all of math, like this kid's in the frustration around, and that's not how it is. It's discrete skills, right? Yes. And this is where it's really important. If you're trying to kind of build off of the instructional hierarchy, you have to understand how math concepts build across time, which is something any good math math scope and sequence will have, right? They'll have like a vertical alignment chart. They'll be like, here's this math domain. Here's where, if you're in fifth grade, here's how it goes up into the middle school grades. And then you can backwards map it down to the younger grades. And so that's what you're kind of working with and within the instructional hierarchy is figuring out where on this, this kind of area is the kid falling. Then you'll obviously work on getting the acquisition down. Once students begin to discriminate really between incorrect, correct responding, they'll be sitting, they would typically say they're sitting in, that's in their instructional range. And at that point in time, you begin to really switch to fluency building. And fluency building can look very different depending on what type of math task you're doing. For basic math facts, it's like, hey, they can begin to answer them within one or two seconds. For computational tasks, they can do that chain skill really quickly. But you can think about even concept knowledge, right? I, I'm having students look at area and perimeter problems and they can quickly, seamlessly, without having to spend a lot of time or effort, identify, oh, this is the area of this, this is the perimeter of this shape. And so, or even like, anyway, there's a lot of ways that could look, right? But the yeah. goal there is to really build seamless kind of performance. From there, you then move into the, what we would consider the mastery range. And that's where you really push generalization. So taking that knowledge and doing it in different contexts, perhaps beginning to discriminate between related skills. So I mentioned area and perimeter before beginning and within generalization, you'll begin to have students kind of, you'll use interleaving practice and have them be able to discriminate between those two related aspects of geometry. Now, yeah, I don't know if you want more, more, more on that than that. 
yeah, let's let's look at some of the mistakes that sometimes teachers can make um, when maybe they haven't got a strong understanding of the instructional hierarchy. You know, so for instance, you might have a teacher that that basically skips that fluency phase. Mm -hmm. You know, what sort of things might we see happening that's going to tell us, oh, you probably needed to have a bit more time building fluency. Yeah. So the biggest issue that ends up happening, and this. I'm going to be the first one to actually back teachers on this. So many times, this is because of the way the scoping guides are set up. It's like, you got three days to do this thing and then you have to move on. And so yeah. teachers don't actually, they're not given time or leeway sometimes to actually build fluency. But what ends up happening is you, let's say you're doing something like number combinations, right? Um, sums to 18. And then you're like, okay, the kid's kind of accurate now, but if any of us watch the kid, they're still either needing to use counters to figure it out, or they're really reliant on finger counting. Yeah. Well, you'll then jump into doing something like five plus a number is the same as 12, right? And that's the pre-algebraic reasoning piece. That's really dang important. It's going to be impossible for that child to be able to allocate their working memory to that very new abstract concept when they're still relying on finger counting. And so the, the biggest way you'll see it come into play is some of these discrete skills that aren't fluent impede their ability to do some of the higher level, more abstract mathematics that we're actually kind of targeting. On the other side, Brendan, what I see happening sometimes is teachers actually stick in the acquisition range too long. Mm. And what that looks like is a kid's very accurate on whatever skill they're doing. And the teacher is still spending a lot of time doing some modeling, doing some guided practice. And what you're actually doing is, I don't wanna say, you're cutting down the amount of time that kid gets to practice. And so if you think about it, uh, a teacher spending time modeling a couple of problems, guided practice, giving a lot of feedback on, oh, you're right, blah, 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 blah. You've basically taken whatever amount of time you have for math and you've cut down the number of practice trials that kid can get, which is going to inherently cut down their ability to build fluency. And so this is where it actually can happen both sides of the spectrum. We can be pushing along too quickly. Mm -hmm. where those kids will get lost in the shuffle, but we can also be hurting the ability to build fluency by spending too long in the acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of teachers, they're not actually understanding like what they need to be looking for to know that, all right, this, this means now I can start to move on into that, that fluency building practice phase. And so, yeah, they might just keep that scaffolding up for too long. I see that as being a pretty common area. Well, um, you know, what you're talking about there where, um, you know, they'll just come whether it's retrieval practice activities, uh, you know, or uh, building off, you know, that initial explicit instruction phase of it. Yeah, they're not actually seeing that, like, they're still giving practice opportunities, but the scaffolding is still there. And so they haven't actually taken it away at all. That's a really great, that's honestly, so this is where I think that it's, I think the tension gets a little bit differently. I see that all the time in special education settings where yeah. it's like those kids are never given a chance to do an independent practice trial. And so, and and I don't teachers don't mean to do it, but inherently we're stuck accidentally giving prompts and mm. then not identifying we're giving one. I'm gonna tell a really tangential story, so I'm sorry. But one of my colleagues, one of my colleagues was out um doing some work in a in a classroom outside Oklahoma, uh, uh, uh outside where Norman is. And I think I forget exactly what what she was doing. But she was trying to help out uh, with uh, a special education teacher in a high school setting. And they were working on getting some students to build independence on some, some like classroom routines. And so one of them was at the end of the day, the kid needs to go to their cubby, grab all their crap, 
pack their bag up and sit down. You with me? So like yeah. that type of like chain skill. And yeah. so she was working on teaching. She goes, no, he's, he's independent at this. So she watched what happened. Right. And so she goes, okay, it's time to clean up. And that should be the cue to go do all those things. Well, mm-hmm. the kid looks at her and she points at the cubby. So then the kid goes to the cubby, comes back, points at the papers. He puts them in. She goes, see, he's independent. She goes, well, can you think through like, what were some of the things you did that triggered that? And she goes, oh, well, like I pointed, 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 did all these things. She goes, yeah, those, those are actually prompts that he's still relying on. So we're not independent yet. And we do this in math all the time without realizing it. Right. Cause it's hard. It's hard as teachers sometimes to withhold prompts, but mm-hmm. that is, that becomes those prompts. Now the student is building dependence on them rather than actually working toward independence. Yeah. Yeah. I like that example. Yeah. All right. So why are curriculum-based measurements useful in education? Yeah, so I love CBMs. Oh, I don't have the book up here. But if anyone wants to read on CBMs, one of the best books is the ABCs of CBM. It's so practical and walks through exactly how to do certain things. And I think I had done a brief, I had done a brief interview with Gina Nelson and her colleague. They had just published a meta-analysis on CBMs. And so I recommend anyone reads that to see some of the benefits of using CBMs and how they correlate to other measures of mathematics. But yeah. one of the benefits of CBMs is they're short. Okay. They're very short to administer. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but a lot of the other sc- uh, math screening measures are, that are out there are computer adaptive. And I don't know which ones y'all might be using there in Australia, but in the U S we have a bunch. And so typically we were doing some work with them on this other project. And it was taking a solid 30 to 45 minutes for kids to finish the screener. And oftentimes it was having, it was basically getting them split. Mm. They wouldn't finish it one class period. So now you're spending two, at least two class periods, not being able to provide instruction. And if you're doing that three times a year, that's six class periods. Whereas most of the CBM measures you're going to administer two to four minutes, you're in and out. And so they give, I would argue from an efficiency standpoint, that's beneficial. The other thing I like about CBMs is most of the math ones are super easy to interpret. It's like, here's how many digits this kid did correctly in a minute versus a lot of those other, the other, the other ones that you end up getting a RIT score. And so then you're like, what does 170 mean? You're like, don't worry about it. It's just based on this other, other scale. And so I think that's an, another area where CBMs are beneficial. The reason I like CBMs for math is depending on what skills you're teaching, you can build mastery measures, which means instead of kind of like sampling the entire grade span of math, it's like, no, I want to look at this specific math knowledge. And you can actually use them repeatedly across time. So if you do them once or twice a week, you're now getting data where you can be like, what I'm doing is helping this kid learn. Or it's not because you're going to have a time series graph with the slope. And the the cool part about the mastery measures is if you're using them, you're like, bam, I'm doing, doing, doing. You see the slope rise. They um, reach the mastery thresh point. You just jump to the next skill, right? In the chain and then the next skill. And so you can basically just generate really informative data that's going to kind of guide your instruction on a week to week basis. Yeah. Can you give us some more specific examples of like what sort of you're, like you're seeing being used effectively? Because in, in Australia, we're probably, we're not using a lot at the moment. I'd say that's probably one of the, the main questions I'll get asked is around assessment. And yeah, so yeah, some examples I'm sure would be great. 
Yeah, perfect. So for young kids, so if you're working within the pre-KK, first grade, some of the most common types of CBMs that can be beneficial is just number identification, which is the same as uh, letter identification. Um, so a simple number identification CBM would have a bunch of numbers randomized, and then the kid just points to them and says what number it is. The other sort of CBM used at that grade span is just straight oral counting. So you'll say something like start at zero and count, and you just count how many correct number sequences a child can count in a minute. The other two most common ones are missing number and quantity discrimination. So for quantity discrimination, you'll have two numbers side by side and the kid has to point to the greater quantity. For missing number, there will either be a three or four number sequence, but one of the numbers is missing. So it'll be something like nine, blank, 11, 12, and the kid has to say what number is there. And those function really well for um, screening purposes, progress monitoring, they correlate pretty well to um, other bulky standardized measures of mathematics at those domains. Once kids get a little bit older, that's when you'll begin to perhaps want to shift to sums to 18. So yeah, any, anything with the sum up to 18 and then subtraction problems that would fit within that same bandwidth. And so you can use those. I've seen a couple people begin to pilot Pilot ones that would be a little bit more around groupatizing. So are you familiar with supatizing? The little dot patterns, how many dots are there? So they'll do groupatizing ones and these kind of come in a variety of fashions. So you might have one where there's a dot array plus a dot array and the kid has to do the addition. Some of the other ones I've seen will be like a dot array plus two. And so they actually use the numeral two. And so I've seen, I've seen those used. And then once you get out of that, you'll begin to just move to the other computational domain tasks, right? So you can do uh, double digit addition within without regrouping, triple digit addition within without regrouping, you move to subtraction multiplication. Now that's on the computation side. And one of the things I will say is math is bigger than computation, okay? So everyone knows math is more than that, but those function really, really well in the elementary ranges because so much of what kids are really being tasked with learning at that age is that whole number piece. The other side that people, CBMs that you can use are called concepts and application CBMs. They're set up a little bit differently. And this is where it would be really important to go and find some that have evidence of producing psychometrically valid scores. They're hard to create. And so this is where if your district's just trying to create some for you, I don't know what that will be. So my recommendation is if you're doing that, Look at the data on how those correlate to some other measure you care about to see if they are serving the purpose. But those get created is you'll look at all the skills taught at that grade span, right? So if you're in first grade or probably usually I haven't seen people using that young. So like second or third grade, all the skills, you basically create math items that would measure those. And then each CBM probe will randomly sample items across all of those. And that's how the CBM gets created. Um, and as you can imagine, those serve, those are really, really useful because they're picking up all the other types of math concepts that are taught that aren't straight computation. The yeah, I don't know how deep you want me to go, Brandon. Uh, I will say the the one, my one concern with only using those. So this is I would not only use concepts and applications, only because it's hard to really get sensitive data. And what I mean by sensitive is. You use it, you wait a week, you use it again, you wait a week, you use it again, you wait a week, right? So now I have, I've collected this thing four or five weeks. Mm -hmm. How much new information, how many new correct responses are you going to get? 
And that's the challenge because it's sampling the entire school year. And so you might've only covered what? One or two new concepts in that span? And how many items on that CBM are actually gonna include that? And so that's the one caveat. Over a long period of time, they're good for usefulness, but on that day-to-day -day type of informative data, you might run into issues, which is why some of the co uh, computation ones, those are a lot more sensitive at picking up learning rates and short short time spans. Yeah. Okay. So if if schools and like systems are looking at which ones to prioritize, you'd probably look at more prioritizing the, the computation ones and. Those will give you a lot. Yeah, those will give you a lot more valuable information if you're trying to dictate, like, is this intervention helping, right? Because clearly, whatever math intervention you're doing, if you have kids with math difficulty, computation is going to be a concern, likely. And so you will at least see, is this thing moving in that direction yeah. we want to see it move? Yeah. All right, let's, let's talk about another, another big one, math fact fluency. So, you know, what is it? How can we build it? How can we assess it? Yeah, what should we be doing? Yeah, perfect. So I think the, the first thing is there are different definitions of fluency. And so some organizations have defined fluency as flexibility. Well, I shouldn't say that. They'll say being accurate and being pretty automatic, but they put a really big emphasis on flexibility. And when I say the word flexibility, it would be something like this problem, 100 minus 65. So if you just think everyone can visualize that problem for a second, a kid doing the standard algorithm is going to do a crap ton of regrouping, right? Mm -hmm. And it's actually going to take longer to do it that way. If we think about what it means to be flexible, a student that gets 100 minus 65 might say, oh, let me do 99 minus 64. So we compensated for both. That's going to be a lot easier. And so that's one example of what flexibility could look like. And so flexibility is important. But what I would say is Carl Binder has a great article that defines fluency. And we look at fluency as kind of speed plus accuracy. And the goal there is really trying to figure out, is this a seamless skill, right? It can the child produce. And for something like math facts, that's a lot cleaner, right? Because it is a declarative type knowledge point. And there's, a, there's so many different ways to try to measure fluent. Well, I shouldn't. There's different protocols you can go through to try to understand, is a student fluent? One of the easiest ways is to kind of have students get a sheet of problems and you say, hey, kids, you're going to get a minute. Do as many as you can. And then you'll see how many problems or digits did they do in a minute. And that's clearly giving you accuracy and that time component. The other way you can do it, though, and this is what I do with my own kids at home, because I have the luxury of doing this, this would be harder for teachers. But if you have flashcard decks, you'll show the kid the problem, six plus five, and you basically start counting. If they can answer it in one or two seconds, it goes in the known pile. If it's longer than that, but accurate, you might put it in another pile that you might consider strategy bound. And then if it's incorrect or it takes longer than like five or six seconds, I'll put it in an unknown pile. Mm -hmm. And then that way you're sorting your cards to understand what facts are mastered, which ones it can the child do correctly, but it is relying on a strategy and which ones aren't. And this is where we're always kind of making an assumption, right? Like this is the hard part. We are making assumptions, but if I give a kid six plus five and they can say 11 in one, one or two seconds, they mm -hmm. probably didn't count, right? They probably retrieved it. So that's why we're assuming it's known. If they're yeah. answering it within three to six seconds, they might've done counting. 
but they also might have had to stop, think, 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 and retrieve it. But I'm not sure of that. So we kind of are defaulting to, okay, it's either strategy or they had to spend a lot of time retrieving. So it's still in this wiggle room. And then obviously anything that's incorrect or much longer than that, we just are going to put in this other pile. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like that idea with the flashcards. And I know that you said it's probably easier uh, to do with your kids at home, but within a class, it is quite easy to set up working in pairs, whether you've got one student with the flashcard and the other one. Yeah, yeah peer assisted yeah. learning strategies. You teach yeah. the routines, kids are very effective at doing those together. And this is where I, I know some, I've heard a couple teachers raise reservations about. X, Y, and Z of doing stuff like this, but it's like, if you can set really good classroom environment routines, I, I don't th see it being that bad, right? As a teacher, you can model making mistakes on purpose at the board and have kids correct you. And you are building that as an expectation in classrooms of, oh, we all make mistakes sometimes, it's okay. And so I don't, I wouldn't get overly concerned about that. And like you said, as long as you teach the routines for kids, you can easily do that. And it's helpful. The other thing that can be helpful within the fluency, math fluency practice range is giving kids some autonomy, not autonomy, that's not the right word, but giving kids a feeling of ownership over their learning, right? So you can have them self-graph their performance, right? You can be like, oh my gosh, you got 15 cards correct today. And they can have a little sticker chart or something where they can graph 15 and be like, oh my mm. gosh, that's way more than yesterday. And the kids see learning and believe it or not, learning is very reinforcing. Kids like to learn. Um, and so that's, there's a lot of easy ways to kind of embed some of those routines to make it, to make it not seem bland. Okay, and look, I think we can we can definitely clear up the fact that when we're looking at conceptual versus procedural understanding, it's not one or the other, but it's both, and and we need both. So when we are talking about basic maths facts, like how can we be teaching both to to get to that level of fluency? Yeah, that's a really great great question. I, I literally just talked about conceptual knowledge and procedural knowledge at a conference last week, and so for something like math facts, um, we. Here would be my my recommendation on this. In reading, and people hate to draw parallels between math and reading. I don't know why, but the people really believe math is this whole different beast to learn. And there are differences. So I'm not going to uh, say there's not. But within the reading literature, it's like, at what point do you start doing any sort of flashcard type thing with kids, right? Once you get letter sounds down, when do you start to say, here's a word, let's try to read it. Here's a word, mm -hmm. let's try to read it. And typically what we'll see, and because you're going to have to do that for some words in the English language because they're irregular. You can't just use phonics to try yeah. to decode them. And so usually what's kind of recommended is don't do that until kids are very fluent at sounding out CVC words. So they can sound out CVC words. We know that you're helping the child know, look, there is a there is a code to unlock to read. Once you're pretty convinced of that, and you're obviously, once they're good with CVC, you're going to move to the next phonics pattern, you're still going to be doing that. That's when you might start thinking about building automaticity and word level reading. And I would say for math, if we begin to kind of think about this, is once I begin to introduce the concept of addition well, right? So we have within addition, we can maybe think of one model as here's a set, here's a set. I count this set, I count this set, I combine them, I then count this whole new set, part, part, whole, right? The kid gets good with that. So I know that they have that knowledge bank. 
I then jump over and start doing the join model of addition, which is here's a set. I'm telling you it's six. You don't have to count it, right? I'm just adding this new set onto it, which is trying to really hone in on the idea of adding on. We get that down. At that point in time, we can feel very comfortable that this kid understands what additions comprised of. I would then say, go ahead and start working on fact building. Because now, now we're having, we're very comfortable that a student understands the concept of addition. And this is where I, some people would be like, well, they, some people might say something like, well, aren't you now focusing on concepts over procedures? And I would argue not. And the reason is, because as part of as part of those models, right, as set and this, you are focusing on procedures. You're focusing on the procedure of counting. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, right? You're having to, you're having to, your kids are focusing on building procedural fluency on their counting skills of either one-to-one -one correspondence counting that whole set or for the join model counting on. And then clearly with somewhere within that, that sequence, you would also be doing the commutative property of addition, which is going to come in handy very much so for fact fluency building. Because if you think about it, we have all these facts to learn. Once a kid knows that two plus nine and nine plus two are the same, you've cut that in half, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't need to necessarily practice teaching both because the kid's going to know that, hey, two plus nine and nine plus two are the same thing. They're both 11. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can support the Knowledge for Teachers podcast and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability. I would be truly grateful if you went to patron.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast. Patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes, my key takeaways from each episode, and more. For large organizations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to throw an idea that I've, I've been experimenting with lately when we're, when we're looking at multiplication and division. Mm -hmm. So building on what you're talking about and, and we're kind of, we've got that conceptual and procedural understanding kind of intertwined and, and we're teaching different aspects of it. And as we kind of get down into the nitty gritty of, of learning their, their times tables, breaking that up and using your analogy before of, of thinking about like the science of, of reading. And if we think about the way that we teach phonics and how We've, we've usually got a set number of, let's call them facts that we're learning at any one time, where we do basically the same thing with maths. And we, we focus on like a, a fact family at a time rather rather than, you know, a set um, sound letter sequence that we might be focused on. And so we've, we've, we're looking at this fact family, but at the same time, we're also building our, our fluency through retrieval practice and looking at the previously learnt facts. And, and so then spacing out that explicit instruction of each fact family over time where yeah you're building not just the procedural understanding but the, that conceptual understanding as well so that they can actually see that through multiple representations of what that might look like and then you're also going over yeah like you said the uh, community property and inverse relationships at the same time and so we're just cutting down the, the facts that they have to learn over time you know have you have you seen that sort of method being used effectively and and you, yeah, Brian, um, Brian Ponce at Oklahoma State, he's built yep. an entire free website with intervention materials called Facts on Fire. And yep. that's exactly what he'll do. He basically has these fact triangles and really what you're getting at. So if we go to multiplication division, you're just getting kids to see that eight, seven, and 56 are in a three-term contingency, right? Mm. So 
If I see 56 divided by seven, what times eight is, what times seven, sorry, is 56, eight, right? And so you're mm -hmm. just helping them tie together. These three numbers go together in different ways. Eight times seven is 56. Seven times eight is 56. 56 divided by eight is seven. 56 divided by seven is eight. And so that's that's literally how it's laid out. And mm -hmm. uh, in direct instruction math, there's a textbook called Direct Instruction in Mathematics. They That's exactly how... You have it. Yeah. It's in my office. They, that's exactly how they lay it out too. So they'll have kids with the three-term contingency and then they'll have kids write out all the facts that they can use for that. And I think it, it as you mentioned earlier, you are building this uh, procedural fluency, but also the conceptual, conceptual knowledge of the inverse, inverse operations. Yeah. And one of the things that's really highlighted as we've been using it is just how like the kids, even when you're, you're just focused on that, that one fact family they can still really struggle to remember that that one fact family. And so, you know, when you look at the, I guess, the traditional way of doing it and you're learning your whole times table, you know, set times table all at once, you can you can start to understand why they don't actually memorize it at, at any sort of level because it's just too much all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's there's a really good paper by that Ponzi's on with this guy named Benjamin Solomon. And they mm -hmm. basically looked at kids' learning rates who are getting intervention. And so it's like, how many, if I'm doing math intervention with kids, how many digits correct are they going to improve session to session on addition yeah. facts and multiplication facts? And not surprising that, well, this, this was a alternative. I was explaining this to my undergrads and they were shocked. Kids' mm -hmm. learning rates for multiplication divisions a lot higher than addition and subtraction. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. The addition and subtraction are easier. But when you think about it, it's so easy to continue to resort to counting strategies. So I see eight plus four and I'm just going to whip out my fingers and start counting. It's mm. not as clean cut to have these backup strategies for multiplication and division. So kids are the retrieve. They're, they're basically going to try to retrieve perhaps first because those backup strategies are, are more laborsome. The other thing they found is the set size. And this is exactly what you're saying. So if we go back to reading for a second, how mm. many new letter sound correspondences am I going to teach at once, right? Mm. And I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a teacher try to do all 26 at one time. And so <laughs> within mathematics, you're doing the same thing, right? You're like, we have all these facts, let's create sets. Mm. And that's what it's interesting. Kids' learning rates are going to be larger if you have a small set. Right. So if I'm only focusing on a set size of here's six new facts, they're going to yeah. learn them really quickly. The challenge is that's six of a billion. Right. And so it's like, what's well, not a billion, but you get what I'm saying. So it's like how large a set size is the best for this kid. Right. Like mm. what can what's the largest I can get to make sure they're going to learn them at an adequate rate so I can get through all these facts and then move on. Yeah. Do we have an answer to that or no? <laughs> No, see, that's the, that's literally what they're doing research on right now. Cause awesome. even simple things, there's so many ingrained, the, the book you just held up direct instruction in math, they have a scope and sequence on when you're going to teach addition facts, here's the scope and sequence you should do. If you're going to do multiplication, here's it. None of that has been experimentally tested. So a hmm. lot of it's like, it makes sense logically the way they lay yeah. it out. So they're like, Hey, when you're focusing on addition, start with plus one first. Why is that? Because they just have to count up once, then start yeah. with plus two and then move on, move on, move on. And then they have other good recommendations of, hey, when you're teaching multiplication rules, do not teach zero and one at the same time. 
they're too similar, kids screw them up. You want to space those out at different points in times so the kids really get zero down and then you'll introduce one later on. And so there's a lot of really good recommendations that make sense logically, but we need, going to your point, that is like the biggest thing that would be beneficial for teachers would be like, start with these first, this is likely to then help with these. And we just don't have a lot of evidence right now to say, this is the exact thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I guess I've kind of been using what makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd definitely be helpful to to have, I guess, some firmer evidence around, yeah, this is a, a set sequence that's more likely to work than other ones. But if we tie it back together, if you're taking data, you're going to see when the learning's not happening, right? And this is the biggest thing of why I said CBMs are so useful. If you have a mm. CBM you're using, you can see rather quickly in three intervention sessions if that needle's not moving. If it's not moving, reduce the set size or change something about the way you're engaging in the intervention because it's not as effective as it could be right now. Yeah, awesome. Great advice there. So yeah, the next one I want to look at is, again, probably another big big thing to discuss, but let's get there anyway. What is schema instruction and why is it important to teach? Yeah, that's a great question. So word problems are notoriously difficult. And they're difficult for so many reasons. And this is where so many kids will experience difficulty with word problems only because the pre-skills aren't known. And so if you think about it, if you're doing word problem solving with fractions and the kid does not under does not currently at that point in time have an accurate understanding of what it means to add fractions, trying word problems with that is just not a good time and place. And so... That's one of the biggest issues I honestly see, because when we all of the if you look at just additive schemas, right, we got kind of three different types. Some people might argue might have more, but I like to think of it as three types. We kind of have total problems. We got difference problems. We got change problems. And it's like if you if a child doesn't have a firm understanding of what the join model for addition looks like and the separate model for subtraction looks like, how are they going to map a situation back to they can't. Right. Mm -hmm. And so. My first advice is the reason we have schema instruction is because we've realized uh, a lot of kids need that heavy duty intervention because those pre-skills aren't known. And as part of, and the other reason I say that is all of this, a lot of the schema-based intervention materials you're going to find are all built by Doug and Lynn Fuchs and then Sarah Powell and her team. And so you got pirate math and then pirate math equation quest. And so it's it's basically those intervention packages are comprised of so many components because they're teaching the pre-skills to help kids. But the big purpose of schema instruction is merely to help students be able to see a situation and say, this situation I'm reading is fitting this structure, right? So they're like, this is a total structure. This is a change structure. This is a different structure. And once they map it to that structure, it helps students be able to say, oh, this is how I could represent that algebraically. And that's literally the goal of it. And this is where I'm going to make another tie into reading, which you might be unhappy about, but we have text structures in readings as well, right? So within reading, like understanding this is a main idea in details, or this Mm -hmm. paragraph is compare and contrast, or this paragraph is problem solution. Students being able to read and map and say this structure's this, this section of test text is fitting the structure. It helps with reading comprehension because they can pull up that schema to think about, They you basically are going to read with a different thought process of how the author's writing. And that's what you're trying to help students do for word problems is to map that information that they're reading, that scenario, 
to one of those structures to facilitate representing it al algebraically and then actually doing the nitty gritty computation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I guess backtracking a little bit, when we are looking at these, this schema instruction and addressing word problems, what sorts of things should be included in, in this attack strategy? Perfect. Yeah. So within schema instruction, one of the first things a lot of students need a little bit of support up front with is how do I even approach a word problem? Because if you think about it, a word problem is just a very different structure than what is five plus three. And so within that, they typically use strategy instruction, which involves, hey, when we see a word problem, we want to do these four steps. And usually those steps are phrased as something really simple that kids are going to remember. So in Sarah and in Sarah's intervention materials, I think they use run, which is read the problem. Oh, wait, now I'm going to draw a blank. I don't know. Actually, I don't remember what Sarah's what they use for theirs. I like to use the word riffs, read the problem, identify the problem type, fill in the information, solve the problem and check. And so you're basically going to model the students. What things should I be doing to attack this? And as part of that, you initially up front have kids self-monitor that. So you'll have the little mnemonic listed and they'll say, first steps, read the problem. You'll target kids to read the problem. They'll then put a little check to signify I did that step. They then go to the next and they engage in that self-monitoring process to begin to internalize, this is how I approach word problems. Mm -hmm. Clearly, right? Clearly, at some point in time, you can scrap that. Because the kid's going to internalize it. They don't need to keep doing that. But that's how you would want to set it up front. And this, I don't know if you've uh, read any writing intervention stuff, but self-regulated strategy development by uh, Karen Harris and Steve Graham, yeah. they all, they rely heavily upon the same exact thing. And so none of this is new from an intervention standpoint. Once we get through that, the next step is really to help students identify what is a total structure. So you basically explicitly say, here's, what a total structure is comprised of. Here's what a chain structure is comprised of. Here's what a different structure is comprised of. And as within Sarah's intervention materials, what they typically do is once students are introduced to each structure, they actually, at the beginning of each session, they'll read a couple problems. And the only kid thing kids do is they, they categorize them. So they don't even solve them, right? So there's like a quick little, I forget what they call it. I think they call it, I can't remember now, but they basically just quickly categorize problems to begin to build fluency, right? This is what they're doing, building that automatic seamless ability to say, hey, I read this situation, it's this structure. From there, what you're gonna need to figure out is you wanna build really strong understanding in just one of the structures initially. And usually we start with total because total is the easiest structure. So you basically will only do word problems that fit total. Get kids to solve those accurately. You'll then shift to the next structure in Sarah's materials. They use the chain structure next. So that you'll then get students very comfortable solving chain structure problems. Then you interleave both of them. Yeah. Sometimes total, sometimes change. You use interleaving practice, which we know is effective. You then introduce the very last one. You then interleave all three. And then I think in Sarah's, they actually begin to come. I can't remember if they do or not. What I typically do with kids is you then interleave because you might have multi-step problems that have both structures in it and you'll begin to do that. 
And the only other element that is kind of important to embed within there is to begin to add in irrelevant information. Because the number of times I've seen <laughs> seen a kid just begin to pull out any number in there and choose an operation. And so you want yeah. within in the middle of total, once you're kind of comfortable, they're really good with that. You might add in an irrelevant information, have them discriminate that. And then the other thing Sarah does a good job of is in those in the total structure, you might you can have two parts in one total, right? You'll solve a bunch of those problems. She'll eventually add three parts with the one total, which then that becomes a multi-step problem, but you're building generalization of, hey, it's no different, right? We can have four mm -hmm. parts, we can have five parts. It doesn't matter, it's still this structure. And that's yeah. that's kind of how it's laid out throughout that scope and sequence of getting kids getting kids comfortable solving them. Yeah, and, and how often should, should students be engaged with solving word problems? That's a really good question. So in there, it's kind of funny because even in, at least in Oklahoma, they have word problem solving as a standard in first grade. I think in Sarah Powell's research, I think the youngest they've gone, at least the youngest I've seen them publish on is second grade right now. But honestly, doing word problem solving, as long as students have the computational demands of what you're doing known, you can always embed word problem solving in almost anything, right? And so I would constantly be engaging in word problem solving with students because it's going to be effective. And as I mentioned that those additive structures, what ends up happening, because this is what happened to me when I taught fifth grade, we were doing word problems with fractions, right? Addition mm -hmm. and subtraction of fractions. They, the, the students I was working with did not understand those structures, right? So you're trying to do something very complicated. They don't they didn't have a firm understanding of those structures. There was misconceptions there. So we had to like buckle back down to whole number, got them understanding those structures to then go back to fractions. And so spending, this is the big push I have is like spending a lot of time early in second and third grade is going to be beneficial because you're going to see it in fourth grade. You're going to see it in fifth grade. Even up into middle school, we still need those additive structure additive structures for a whole bunch of situations yeah yeah it's, it's a key point there just around as well word problems we can introduce them quite early and if you actually look at like well what is a word problem you're going to naturally use it like pretty much right from the start of teaching mathematics because you're going to help them understand like you know what these numbers can actually represent and and you just oh. naturally put them into some sort of scenario don't you yeah. Uh, can I add one other point on the word problem solving stuff? Definitely. One of the big issues I've seen in practice and working with our teacher, our pre-service teachers, and they're the ones who like identify this, they see it happening and then they come back in class and be like, here's what I did, is we make an assumption a lot of times, if I read the problem aloud, I'm good, right? Because clearly one of the issues we run into with word problems is if we just say, okay, kids, read the problem. If we do see reading difficulty at the decoding level, we're going to, they can't map the problem because they haven't actually had access to that text. So it, yeah. all, teachers will be like, I'll just read it. I'm good. That's fool's gold sometimes, because if we have co-occurring language difficulties, right? You can read it all day, but we might not have the language comprehension to then be able to map that problem either. And so in some of the, Lynn and Doug Fuchs have been doing this recently, They've embedded within schema instruction some explicit vocabulary instruction. And so I, I can I can send it to you if you want to look yep. at. 
but they have they say like here's some keywords. Oh, I don't want to use the word keywords. Scrap what I just said. Here's some words that are going to be very helpful to understand for this type of structure. And so if you think about different the different structures specifically, you'll see things like this had this much greater this much less we're like phrases like that. And it's like a lot of kids might not have a firm understanding of what that means. And so mm -hmm. providing some explicit instruction on those phrases. So students then can access the word problem is going to be really beneficial. Yeah. Look, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, again, it just comes back to looking what the, the students currently know, what they understand. And, you know, if they, if they haven't got that prerequisite knowledge, they haven't got that language when it comes to word problems, they're not going to be able to do it. It doesn't matter how good their computation skills are if they, if they can't decode words or haven't got the vocabulary. This is where embedding even some of your reading, reading and instruction stuff. Some people have been doing research on this where they'll actually apply the three re reads method two word problems. So you'll read it once through to get a picture. You'll then read it again, but at the sentence level, begin to unpack, what does that sentence mean? What does this sentence mean? And then once you get through the third time reading it, you begin to, so basically you're just scaffolding that, that first step in your, your, your strategy instruction of read the problem. You might need to scaffold reading the problem to help students unpack language. Mm, mm. Yeah. Great point there. Look, Corey, you know, we've, we've unpacked so many different things today. We've gone through your, your, your MIST paper on maths. We've also looked at the instructional hierarchy. We've looked at building fluency and, you know, CBMs and uh, now looking at word problems. So I think we've almost gone through all of mathematics that you need to know <laughs> in, in about an hour's time. So yeah, it's been a, a great conversation. Have, have we left anything out, do you think? No, uh, the only other thing I would say is if you're trying to improve math instruction, that cannot be done without just considering good instruction. Like what does even just good instruction look like? So considering things like, what does it look like to provide high levels of opportunities to respond? And what does it look like to think about providing good opportunities to respond? What does it look like to make sure we're providing solid behavior specific praise? What does that mean? And so like all of these general things of like, what does it mean to be able to organize, uh, kind of organize a classroom that's running efficiently, students are responding, students are getting feedback immediately, there's a limit on classroom disruptions teachers are having to handle with like that good math instruction doesn't happen in this nice confined bubble. It's mm. part of this broader. And so like putting high levels of emphasis of just, just not even just good instructional delivery is you're yeah. not going to be disappointed by that. Yeah. Yeah. No, great point. So this is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. Do you have any other bits of knowledge or resources that you would like to recommend for teachers or school leaders? Yeah, so one of the biggest things I put point people to a lot, the National Center on Intensive Intervention has a free online course. It's eight modules, work at your own pace, and it covers everything about the thinking about what it would look like to kind of design a math intervention framework at your school site. So it covers that, but then it also dives deeply into specific early numeracy skills, whole number concepts, and then fractional concepts and thinking about how to introduce them, how to teach them. And it's all free. It's awesome. So that would be the one. Also on the NCII, National Center on Intensive Intervention webpage, they have a couple tool charts that can be helpful. One of the tool charts that I point people to a lot is it 
and they're constantly trying to update this, but it looks at the psychometric properties of different screeners in progress monitoring tools. So earlier when I was saying, hey, it might be fool's gold to think you're just going to generate concepts and application CPMs in your own classroom. And I'm not telling teachers don't do that because you can build exit ticket, like doing all of like those little exit tickets you're going to have students do, that's not pointless. But if you're wanting to use like something that's going to be used across the year, they have uh, their tool chart will give you all a bunch of the research evidence on all the different aspects of psychometric properties you might want to consider. So I would say yeah. those two are really awesome. Yeah, great. And I'll, I'll, I'll put those links into the show notes as well. So I guess this is kind of more of a broader question, but, you know, at the moment where we've had this, this, and we've mentioned a number of times in this conversation, we've had this, you know, big push for the science of reading. What sorts of things do we need to see happening to ensure that at that kind of system level, um, we can see maths being put to the forefront of the agenda and, and more specifically, you know, the science of maths, or we're not going to call it that, you know, this effective way of teaching maths. How can we ensure that, yeah, this, this evidence base is being listened to and looked at at that kind of system level? Yeah, one of the... Uh, some of the schools that have had the greatest turnaround for reading have had principals who have bought in hands down that this is important. And so the more that we can get administrators involved, knowledgeable, aware, and then also bought in, it's going to really be beneficial for teachers' ability to actually do effective practice. And so that would be like my number one biggest push is to try to talk to more principals and broaden the scope of things, broaden their scope to look at what does math instruction look like. The other thing is, and this is something I've tried really hard to do recently, is to engage in productive dialogue with people who might provide a different perspective. Because the whole goal here is very rarely have I seen anyone recommend something that's bad. It's about at what point in time are we going to do that? And so the more we can begin to lean into conversations around that side of things of what time point would this be beneficial for the kids in this school, the better. And that's like, hopefully, as I kept saying, you got your data. If you have your school data, that should drive what we're doing, right? If, if what we're doing is not supporting the kids at our school building, it's hard, it's hard to keep supporting what you're doing. And so hopefully let let kids and their let their performance guide the practices at your school. Yeah, yeah, great. And and I like the idea of trying to talk to people who maybe have differing views to you. Um because yes, it's definitely one that is, that's needed, you know, where we, we kind of get into these different battles. Whereas what we actually need to be doing is working more alongside each other and, and kind of seeing, well, we've all got the same end goal where we want to be improving student learning outcomes, but where a lot of the times our own adult egos seem to get in the way of, of what we actually want. Corey, what's what's new for you? What's happening? You know, what do we what can we look out for in the future? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I have a sub stack that I'm going to actually finally, hopefully start writing on again. I've gotten super busy. So hopefully that. The other thing I'm really excited about is we've been doing this pretty massive tutoring project. Um, as you can imagine, most math intervention and math instruction research has been done at the elementary school, and we basically ignore high school age students. And yeah. so we've been doing this really large project with ninth graders uh, at a bunch of different high schools. And so I think at the end of this year, we will have 
our first report finished that is three years worth of randomized control trial data. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to get that out. And hopefully, hopefully it might actually inform more like policy type decisions around what's what's happening. Because we basically found increasing math time is really beneficial to math learning, which sounds it sounds obviously you're probably like, yeah, no, no crap, Corey. But the number of times I see it's only 50 minutes of math time and these kids are severely below currently and they're not going to pass algebra one. We'll do something about it. And here's some data that shows that it's very effective. Yeah, great. Well, and and thanks for the teaser. It's definitely looking out for what the findings are. And, and I think, like you said, it is important to, because we have spent so much time looking at that elementary or, or primary sort of age range. Yeah, it's definitely important that we don't just let all of those those students who have kind of missed the boat in a sense, we can't just let them slip through. Slip yeah, through yeah. Same. Getting through Algebra 1 and being able to graduate is super yeah. pivotal. Access yeah. to access to a host of other really important outcomes. So, yeah. Corey, it's been really great talking to you today. I think a lot of teachers will get um, so much out of this conversation because, you know, you've, you've touched on so many important key points and hopefully cleared up some of those misconceptions and given some clear guidance around what we should be doing next in the classroom in mathematics. So thank you for your time and yeah, look forward to, to seeing what comes out from your work in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think Corey was able to unpack so much in our conversation today and was able to hopefully clear up some of those questions that you might have had about teaching mathematics. Here are my key takeaways. The science of maths is about looking at how the data from research studies might inform what effective instruction should look like. Kids' maths knowledge entering pre-K and K is very predictive of their whole later math development, so we need to be supporting the importance of math screening. The problem with inquiry-based instructional models is that it's not efficient and it's going to take longer for the children to master whatever you're trying to teach. We don't have to wait for them to make mistakes, for them to figure out how to correct it. We can provide some worked examples up front, teach them the concept first, and then you can have them look at some work samples and identify the errors. If we leave it up to students to figure things out when learning something new, they're going to feel frustrated. So we need to provide some sort of acquisition instruction. We need to make sure that we know what phase of learning our students are at and base our instructional practice on that information. Corey gave a great example of how we can use prompts unintentionally as scaffolds. Curriculum-based measurements are really useful because of how quick they are and the data that it gives you. The flashcard idea is a super simple but highly effective retrieval practice strategy. The Letness system of forcing students to work on their weaknesses more often can make flashcards really powerful. I also found it interesting how the learning rates for multiplication and division is a lot higher than addition and subtraction because it's easy to resort to counting strategies. Many kids will experience difficulty with word problems only because the pre-skills aren't known. We need to explicitly show students what different types of word problems look like and a simple activity can then be to have them categorize them. I like how he emphasized the importance of applying reading strategies to word problems like the three reads method and unpack each sentence. Corey is my last guest to feature on the Knowledge for Teachers podcast for 2023, but I'll release a special episode on my key takeaways from this year. The Knowledge for Teachers podcast will be back with a bang in 2024 and already have a number of exciting and highly knowledgeable guests lined up. However, that's it from me for today. As always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.